Thanks for tuning in to Access Utah before we jump into today's very important topic. Unfinished business from yesterday. You recall we talked about the national parks uh, yesterday um, and on the occasion of Earth Day. And uh, Steve, our friend in Arizona, has emailed this. He says, listening with keen interest to tonight's rebroadcast of this morning's Access Utah Earth Day discussion of national parks and monuments and so forth, Tom has just tossed out to us listeners the question, what's your favorite place? Which immediately engaged the listener's mind, which disgorged lickety-split New York, Paris, Rome, Boston, Philadelphia. Now, uh, not what I expected in the context of the conversation, so I had to think about it. I do so love Zion and Capitol Reef and all of America's and the rest of our planet's sacred, mostly unviolated spaces, but social primate that I am, I'm mostly drawn to cities. These urgings are not really in conflict, would you agree? We need both. And contemplating the separateness of city, country, and wilderness brings another kind of related question to mind. In Europe, there is a distinctly discernible boundary where cities end and where the countryside begins. Sadly, here in the States, urban-suburban sprawl has erased such boundaries. This is our loss and makes even more precious those wilder lands we preserve. That's Steve. Thanks for that. Keep those coming. Upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The women's, uh, Utah Women's Giving Circle is presenting a spring dialogue that's happening on Thursday, May 2nd in Salt Lake City. It's titled After Me Too, A New Frontier. The organization uh, says that their members want to take the awareness generated by hashtag MeToo to drive the conversation forward into a solution and a new standard, answering the question, now what? And today we're talking with the panelists, uh, Christine M. Jepson of Parsons, Bailey and Latimer, Tiffany Turley, Title IX Coordinator at BYU, and Jennifer Oxborough, Executive Director of uh, Utah Violence, a Domestic Violence uh, Coalition. Uh, just a mention here up front about the event. It'll be moderated on that occasion by Emily Flores from ABC4 News. And uh, that is happening at Dorsey and Whitney, 111 Main Street in Salt Lake City. Uh, a member's social begins at 6 o'clock. The panel starts at 6.30 and goes till 7.30. Again, the title after hashtag me to a new frontier. Let's welcome in our guests. Uh, Christine M. Jepson is uh, with a shareholder with Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, chair of the firm's Employment and Labor Law Practice Group, and uh, understand um, is chair of the Employment and Labor Law uh, Practice Group, as I just mentioned. Um, Christina Jepson, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, am I saying the name of your firm correctly? You did very well, Parsons, okay. Bailey, and Latimer. Okay, all right. Uh, I, w I wasn't sure on the Bailey, but I, I, I guessed right. Okay, good. Um, Jennifer Oxborough is um, the executive director um, of the Utah Domestic Violence uh, Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for including me. It's a pleasure to be here. And our third panelist is Tiffany Turley, who is Title IX coordinator at Brigham Young University. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Looking forward to the discussion. Um, so I, I want to start with, uh, well, let me just read this. This is uh, really struck me. I used this as an introduction to a panel discussion we had a few months ago here in Logan. Uh, this is from NBC News. 
On the afternoon of October 15, 2017, the actress Alyssa Milano tweeted a request to her followers. If you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a reply to this tweet. The results were overwhelming. Within 24 hours, her post generated thousands of replies, comments, and retweets, inspired thousands more original posts on social media with women and men from around the world sharing personal stories. And uh, then they quote Alyssa Milano. She says, we've come really, really far in a year. The story was October of last year. But I think we have a lot further to go, she said. No movement is perfect. There are going to be setbacks. But I think it's within the gray areas that we can have important discussions about setting boundaries that have never been set before. She said she wanted to give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. That's why she... uh, uh, used uh, Tarana Burke's uh, hashtag, uh, me too. Uh, let me start with Jennifer Oxborough on this, um, and I want to uh, ask each of the panelists uh, this this question. Um, it seems like, I mean, we're pretty sure something changed, right? October of 2017, now you know, a year and a half in. Um, w- what has changed? You know, we're really excited to see a lot of positive movement, um, both associated with the Me Too movement and just with growing awareness across Utah in particular. Um, We work a lot with our organization, with policymakers, and had a really positive legislative session. I would say the pushback that's been negative has been pretty minimal. Um, We we definitely have had a few opportunistic uh, foes who have, you know, tried to spin this a different way. Um, and accuse people of, of going too far with these accusations and encouraging people to reconsider the start by believing movement that came from Me Too as well. But overall, I think we're going in a really positive direction, and I'm excited to see some of the solutions that are coming forward to this, this public health epidemic. Uh, Tiffany Turley, to you next. Same question. Um, what has changed? Um, a lot has changed for us as as Jennifer mentioned, I think the, the greatest change is just in awareness and people talking about these. We can no longer say that these issues don't matter. Um, they can no longer be swept under the rug in, in any of their forms. And I'm grateful for the opportunity we've had, especially on college campuses, to be able to use that momentum and channel it into greater awareness of these issues and uh, more prevention and, and how do we prevent these things before they started instead of having to react to them after the fact with, with a movement like this. And we've seen a lot of positive changes that BYU are reporting has gone up over 400% from 2017 to 2018. And so we know that people are more willing to come forward and, and speak about these things now. And, and we've seen a lot of really positive change. And as Jennifer also mentioned, we're looking forward to where we go from here and how we continue to use the momentum of this movement into making positive and lasting change on our campus and in our community. Christina Jepson, same question to you. What has changed? So I would say what's really changed is a seismic shift in our culture. The concept of sexual harassment as a legal concept has existed um, since the 1970s and 1980s. Um, there's been sexual harassment training going on in workforces since then. But now we're, you know, employers are really redoubling their efforts to you know, make sure that their culture um, you know, opposes this kind of activity and that people have a way of reporting and addressing those kind of concerns. So that's really what I'm trying to help employers do. I want to follow up there. Uh, you say that you know, the, the law has always, always been there. Um, seismic shift in the culture. I think that illustrates that you know, the law can't take care of everything, right? Culture has to play a part. Yeah, absolutely right. So what had happened is uh, there was a lot of research that showed that sexual harassment training, for the most part, was not making a big difference. 
in workplaces. In some workplaces it was, but many it was not. And, and that's really because if in a, a company just says, we're going to do sexual harassment training, and it's sort of a check the box, okay, we did it, we're done, that's not going to make any difference. Um, when I do training, I require that the president, the CEO, the leaders of the company come to that training and really understand that it has to be a change in the culture and how they do things. Uh, let me uh, go around the panel again and ask, uh, you know, kind of the opposite end here, and then we'll get into some specifics. Uh, so starting with Jennifer Roxburgh, what has not changed? What do you wish had changed or has changed more? Well, I still think we do have a very long way to go. I think, um, you know, while I, I'm hopeful and uh, I'm seeing a lot of promise, I think there's still this resistance overall, especially in our state, especially in Utah, uh, we have this resistance to having a conversation about this. And, you know, we can talk about some of the statistics, some of the data that helps us understand the magnitude of this issue in our culture. Um, But the reality is that the majority of sexual harassment, the the majority of sexual abuse and sexual assault is perpetrated against a woman, typically, and it's, it's by someone that she knows. And that's, that's kind of uh, contrary to what a lot of people assume, that this is something that is, you know, sexual assault in particular is being perpetrated by a stranger, and less than a third of sexual assaults are, are actually perpetrated by someone unknown to us. So there's this um, resistance in Utah to really accept that we have a, a really serious issue here. It's often caused by a family member or a current or former intimate partner, someone we've worked with. And there are a lot of things that we can do about it, but we first have to be able to have dialogues like this and talk about the reality. I definitely want to come back to that. That's a very interesting. Uh, let me uh, stay on this question, though. Uh, Tiffany Turley, what has not changed? What do you wish were changing faster? I love the word that Jennifer used, the word resistance. I think that is exactly how I feel as well. I think we've come a long way, as has been mentioned numerous times thus far, but there's still a long way to go. And I think sometimes these issues can feel so daunting. We don't even know where to start. Um, and, and that's where I really want people to know that they can make a difference in their own spheres of influence. And, you know, that resistance to speaking about this or bringing it up, especially here in the state of Utah, that's one thing that I think we need to continue to overcome. I think there are still concerns uh, with victims coming forward and reporting these things. There's been a significant amount of backlash against people who have come forward and reported uh, sexual harassment and sexual misconduct in, in various, various aspects of their lives. And um, I think those myths and um, the continued notions that we have about false reporting and, and people using this for a political agenda and, you know, having ulterior motives and reporting these things, I think those are the things we can start to impact and change continually to do so um, using the momentum we've gained so far. I think there's a, a long way to go, um, but I am encouraged by the progress we've made thus far. Christina Jepson, what has not changed? I guess picking up on what Tiffany said about backlash, what I'm seeing in the employment world um, in some instances is a sort of backlash um, where some men mostly are saying, well, gosh, now that we have the Me Too movement, I'm just not going to work with women. Um, That makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to get in trouble. So I'm not going to mentor them. I'm not going to work alone with them. I'm not going to socialize with them. And and that's causing some problems as well. So I I think it's also educating people that you can still work with women. In fact, you have to work with women, and you have to mentor them, and you have to treat them exactly the same as men, really trying to address that point. I want to follow up uh, here immediately. Uh, so uh, you, 
you are encountering. You're hearing of men not, they're saying, uh, I want to keep myself safe. I might get uh, zapped here, so I'm not going to work, work with women. Right, exactly. I, I think I read one study that said that half of male managers um, reported that they were concerned um, about working with women because of the Me Too movement, and so they were resisting, um, you know, doing the sort of things they need to do as managers. Uh, and that can really hurt women's careers if, you know, obviously if men don't mentor them, they don't work with them, they don't include them in projects. So part of my training is always about that element of the Me Too movement as well. Yeah, that's... Uh... Um, that's, that's it's amazing to me. I uh, always say, go ahead and work with women. Just don't sexually harass them. Yeah, yeah that's that was my right. that was my thought. Um, you know, behave yourself, right? You, you'll right, be exactly be okay if you behave, behave yourself. I also think going along with that, I think one thing that's important is reassuring people because we've heard those same comments. I mean, women in in higher education, academia, that's a tough field anyway. And so now to have this pushback from male colleagues who are saying. You know, we, we don't want to work with them. We're afraid. We don't want to be falsely accused. I think reassuring people that processes are in place to address concerns. So if someone is concerned about being falsely accused, there are processes in place a lot of times, you know, in, in workplaces that will get to the heart of the issues and, and protect, you know, those who are accusing as well as those who have been accused. So that's one thing that's been really important to us is when we felt that sort of resistance that Christina was talking about, people, you know, even sometimes facetiously saying, I'm, I'm just not going to talk to women ever again in my career, which is just the most ridiculous thing ever, letting them know, you know what, do what you're doing. Don't harass women, um, but do what you're doing and know there are processes in place if something like this happens. So those sort of processes and, and things I think are really critical to being able to address these issues. Of course, there's uh, you know there's hyperbole and maybe overreaction on the part of uh, part of men. But, um, uh, is there in any way, shape, or form, in any significant degree, false reporting? Should should people be concerned about that? You know, the the false reporting rates are something that come up all the time, and the research shows that false reporting around issues of domestic violence, sexual assault, and sexual harassment the false report rates are incredibly low. In fact, those are, those are situations that are underreported to begin with because they are so complicated. Um, when we're being harassed or assaulted or abused by someone that we work with, someone that we love, someone that we share custody with, um, someone we, we possibly share a home or a bank account with, the implications for reporting can be very scary and very significant. And so we know that within those issues, the report rate tends to be very low overall. And the false report rate, you know, best research, you can look at meta-analyses across the board and see that false reports rate, false report rates at most are 6 to 7%. Mm. I want to talk about the, um, um, I think it was uh, perhaps... Uh, Tiffany Turley, who said that the uh, reporting rate is still uh, is still perhaps low. You're talking about BYU, are you? Yeah, mm-hmm. our reporting rate is, I mean, it's lower than we would want, um, but it is increasing, which is what we want as well. Not that we feel like there's been an influx of, you know, misconduct on our campus. We don't think that's the case. Rather, we feel like people are more willing to come forward, but we still know we've got a long ways to go because of some of the misconceptions that still exist in, in our society and in our culture here in the state. And why do you think uh, progress is a little slower than you'd like on, on reporting? I think for us because it takes a long time to shift the culture. I know that's been um, discussed, you know, in, in our conversation here, but 
culture shifts are really tough, especially when it comes to issues where we're having to accept that the world isn't maybe as wonderful of a place as we'd want it to be, especially here in Utah. I think it can be hard for people to accept that these awful things happen. And so when they come up and when they're discussed, we want to just dismiss them, Um, you know, not often maliciously, but just because we don't want to accept that that's unfortunately how the world is sometimes. So I think that shifting the conversation, helping people come to grips with this, um, but also doing so in a positive way that helps them understand that the change that they can make uh, can be really positive, albeit small in, in a lot of cases. I think helping reframe the conversation, but that's, it's just never easy to do when you're trying to take hundreds of years of, of culture in, in the bigger society and, and shift that into a place that is changing. Um, I want to move a similar question next to Jennifer Oxborough. Are, are you seeing this as well? Um, increase in reporting, but maybe not where you'd like it to be? Yeah, you know, the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition has been around since the early 90s. We were created under the Violence Against Women Act, and there's an organization like us in every single state and territory across the country. Um, So we represent the community-based programs that are working directly on the ground with survivors of domestic and sexual violence, um, human trafficking victims across our state every single day. And so collectively our programs and our statewide hotline that UDBC manages we answer about 43,000 crisis calls per year on our, on our crisis hotlines, and uh, we provide about 100,000 nights of emergency shelter per year, lots of case management and legal advocacy, children's advocacy support, and we have definitely seen the need for our services increase. Um, we're glad that people are finding us, uh, but it is indicative that this is a, a problem that has been below the surface for a long time. And I do think as people are starting to feel safer to come forward and seek services, we need to make sure that we have adequate services available um, across the state. We have 29 counties in Utah and only 13 community-based programs serving 29 counties. So a lot of times when people come forward to try to talk to a professional advocate to figure out what they can do and how they can start to heal from the experience that they've had, Um, Sometimes they need to improve their safety and they need a professional advocate to help them plan for that. Um, It can be difficult to connect with someone because we're at capacity quite often. So um, please always reach out to us. We will find help. We have a great network. Um, I don't want to discourage anyone from coming forward, but just understand that the resources in, in Utah are quite limited, especially compared to other states. Uh, I want to take this to uh, Christina Jepson. Uh, you mentioned culture at the top of the program. Uh, the, the, you know, the law is there, but the, the culture, there's a needed cultural shift, and it's changing, but maybe not as much as we, we want it to. Um, how much of this is is cultural, and, and specifically uh, backlash? We do see some backlash, and I, I could imagine that would inhibit uh, someone coming forward if they if they see someone else getting uh, being a victim of backlash. Right. So, you know, really companies have to, um, like I said, change their culture and really embrace this concept of, you know, we're going to have policies, but not just policies. We're also going to have training where we educate employees about how to report, to whom to report, multiple ways of reporting so that there's someone safe that they can go to. And then employers really putting the resources there um, into doing a proper investigation and taking appropriate action. And, you know, in the employment world, um, often we're talking about, I think, what you mentioned at the top of the program, Tom, which is sort of the gray area. You know, it's not always 
sexual assault or something that's, you know, very obvious, but, you know, something, you know, more complicated, some sort of um, interaction between people. And I really like to focus on teaching people, you know, first of all, just kind of like we tell our kids, use your words. If there's some sort of behavior that you don't like, communicate to people that, you know, that makes you uncomfortable. Sometimes that alone can solve the problem. And then also, telling people to use your ears. That means if someone tells you that you're doing something uncomfortable, that you need to really be able to hear that and change your behavior. And then, uh, you know, I also tell everyone to use your brains, which, you know, maybe is a harder thing to teach. But, you know, if we can use our brains and we can, you know, try to uh, understand the sensitivities of other people and change behavior, I think the culture will shift. Before we go to break, I want to follow up with this. Uh, You said earlier in the program that, uh, companies have had sexual harassment uh, tra- prevention trainings, but perhaps hadn't th- those hadn't gotten the traction that the, they would have liked, the, the trainers would have liked. But then Me Too hit. That, that's perhaps accelerated this? Yeah, since Me Too hit, um, the uh, number of sexual harassment charges with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission have gone up quite a bit. And just in my own experience, the number of complaints made internally at companies have also increased. And, you know, companies are really, you know, trying to understand what do we need to do better to make sexual harassment training better. Um, I I encourage people to do live training with lots of examples as opposed to, you know, some sort of computer program where people just, you know, go through it quickly. So, you know, trying to make those trainings meaningful and understandable to people and then really taking action afterwards is, is so important. Well, let's do take a break. Um, when we come back, I want to uh, treat uh, Jennifer Oxborough's point. There's a resistance, uh, she said, to having a conversation about this in Utah. That's uh, an interesting point. I wanted to, uh, to follow up on that. Also, the, uh, the question that the uh, members of the Utah Women's Giving Circle uh, wanted to have happen in their spring dialogue, which is what we're previewing here today, is to take the awareness generated by hashtag MeToo to drive the conversation forward into a solution and a new standard. So I want to talk about that new standard and answering the question, now what? Uh, moving uh, into the future. Uh, we're talking with the panelists. And by the way, that panel is uh, Thursday, May 2nd, uh, 6 to 7.30 p.m. at Dorsey and Whitney in Salt Lake City. That's 111 Main Street. And uh, you can get more information on the event by going to utahwomensgivingcircle.com slash event slash after dash me too. Uh, the panelists are Christina M. Jepson from Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, Jennifer Oxborough, Executive Director of the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, and Tiffany Turley, Title IX Coordinator with the Brigham Young University. You're welcome to join the conversation. Hope that you will. Would love to get your perspective on this. Um, a couple of ways. Upraccess at gmail.com is our email, upraccess at gmail.com, and uh, you can tweet at us at upraccess. It's at upraccess. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis Gallery Deli at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan, featuring triple-certified coffee, espresso bar, and Saturday and Sunday brunch from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Details at cafeibis.com. On the next On Being, philosopher of ecology Joanna Macy's path wound from the CIA to Tibetan Buddhism to the poetry of Rainer Maria Rilke. I had to be with Rilke, and what a reward. It was as if I were being dipped in beauty. Poetry and wisdom for the dramas of our time. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday evenings at 5 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio.
The accordion can do a lot more than just polka. It can croon a sweet serenade, add a bit of whimsy, and coming up we'll hear the sultry, sensual side of the accordion. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next performance today from APM. Tune in tonight at 9 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're previewing a panel discussion that's going to be presented by the Utah Women's Giving Circle. That's happening on Thursday, May 2nd. Begins at 6 o'clock with a member's social. The panel begins at 6.30 and runs till 7.30. And that is happening at Dorsey and Whitney, 111 Main Street in Salt Lake City. The panelists who we have on our program today are Christina M. Jepson from Parsons Bailey Latimer. She's chair of the Employment and Labor Law Practice Group. Uh, Jennifer Oxborough is executive director of Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. Tiffany Turley is Title IX coordinator with Brigham Young University. And we're grateful to have them on the program. You can uh, join us here. We hope that you will. If you have a question or comment, uh, email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. You can uh, tweet to us um, at UPR Access, at UPR Access. I never know whether to say tweet at or tweet toward or tweet with. I'm, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm old, so, but, but you can definitely use Twitter uh, to get to us. Um, so, uh, Jennifer Oxper, I, uh, I want to treat your question in depth here. This is a very interesting question to me. Uh, so remind us, you were saying that there, you see some resistance to having a conversation about uh, this uh, in Utah. Right, I do, and, um, you know, I'm not from Utah, but I love Utah. I've been here for over 15 years. I've raised two children here and have no plans to leave. It's an absolutely wonderful place, and it's incredibly safe in so many ways. Um, But when we look at some of the data from our own Department of Health in Utah, we can see that there's some gender-based violence that is outside of the, the norm, Uh, exceeding even in certain ways the national averages. And so we need to be having this conversation. But I think the perception is that Utah is really wholesome and kind of squeaky clean, and we're all about family values. And all of that is true. Um, But I think we're, we're sometimes missing an opportunity to look for solutions and improve safety overall and well-being for people in Utah when we're not talking about some of those outlying issues. Um, and sexual abuse, sexual assault, and harassment in the workplace are, are very concerning uh, rates and trends in Utah that we can do something about if we can talk about it. So um, I, I think maybe one of the contributing factors is just the reality for women in Utah. You know, if you look at census data, you can see that women in Utah have twice the birth rate of the national average per capita. So we have twice as many children. Um, we have very low rates of employment, a very low earnings potential for women per capita. And so we have women that have um, a higher degree of dependency, more children, and fewer uh, financial opportunities, fewer uh, opportunities for financial independence. And so they're, they're sometimes um, really reliant and, um, and caught within a cycle of abuse or violence. Um, and that can make it really difficult to talk about, I think, sometimes because people don't know what to do or say. So these these opportunities to come together like this just this morning and talk about this and invite some, you know, some thoughts and some input, they're really, really valuable opportunities for us to uh, shift that culture in Utah and figure out what we can do to make this better for everyone. 
I'll turn to Tiffany Turley next. Um, uh, I don't know if you're seeing a resistance to talking about this. Um, Jennifer Roxborough, you know, talks about she's not from Utah. Uh, BYU is is very quote unquote Utah, right? (laughs) Culture there. About as Utah as it comes. Um, You're Title IX coordinator there and have worked in, uh, you know, state government, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Are you seeing resistance? Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of the same sorts of things. One thing that I think contributes, and this is not necessarily specific to Utah, but just generally, is these experiences can be very isolating, and that's usually the intent of the people who perpetrate harassment and and sexual misconduct. Um, And so helping people understand, I believe that's what the Me Too movement has done a significant um, and positive job of doing, is letting people know that they're not alone, that they can come forward, that there are resources available. And I'm grateful to groups like Jennifer's who are making these resources known and, and helping people understand that there is help, that they can come forward and talk about them, and that we're having conversations like these that are bringing resources to the forefront, helping women see that they're not alone, helping men as well. I mean, I've been looking at studies and, and seeing that, you know, of the you know, one-third of working men in a study I recently saw, and, you know, studies can, numbers vary for sure, but one-third of working men have experienced some form of sexual harassment in the last year. I think helping men, too, understand what options and resources are available, because these are not necessarily just women's issues. They're human issues that all of us are dealing with. And until we can all wrap our heads around them and be willing to talk about them and confront them head on, not a lot will be done. I think it's easy to pass these off as, oh, it doesn't affect me or I don't need to worry about it. I was talking to some people as I was preparing for this event thinking, you know, how has the Me Too movement impacted you? And I had a couple say, it, it really hasn't. I don't harass people in the workplace, and so it really doesn't affect me. And, and I was able to kind of help them see, well, what about your awareness of these issues, and have you been talking about them? Oh, yeah, I've been doing that, and I'm more aware. So helping people understand that even if, you know, you don't have a propensity to harass people, which hopefully most don't, um, how this Me Too movement has still impacted, you know, your um, ability to frame this issue and to understand it and push past that resistance of, I don't need to talk about this, this doesn't affect me. Uh, I want to ask the same question to Christina Jepson. Have uh, have you noticed resistance to talking about this, or or has your experience been different? No, sure. There's a resistance. I mean, these are not comfortable topics um, for most of us. Um, it is interesting. I have four daughters who range in age from nine to twenty, and their generation is um, remarkable in their ability to talk about these issues. It's certainly much better than my generation, I think. Um, but then I, you know, I do trainings at workplaces where you encounter people from a variety of backgrounds, a variety of um, generations, and those conversations can be more difficult. But it is amazing how, you know, once you're able to broach it and ask a question like, is it okay to hug at work? Is it okay to tell someone they look nice? Is it okay to ask someone on a date? And, you know, you get people talking about these things, and you you really, um, you can get some interesting conversations about uh, about the topic, and you can get a lot more awareness. I also think, um, someone just mentioned, you know, I, I think something along the bystander point of view, and that is that we, whether you've been impacted by this sort of issue directly, you are a bystander. You see these things happen, and we all need to be empowered to help other people um, come forward and report these kind of concerns. Uh, before we leave this particular topic, uh, Jennifer Oxborough, uh, you know, with an outsider's eyes, um, uh, this may be an uncomfortable question or, or not, I'm not sure. Uh, it does, does specific Utah culture have an impact here? And, and culture, I guess, frankly, connected to the 
predominant religion, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? You know, I love uh, Utah culture, and I love all of the people that I've met here have been so kind to me and my family. I've had an amazing amount of support for this work and this advocacy, even prior to Me Too. I think once people are aware of this issue, they care about it very much. And, you know, most people out there, most men out there want to do the right thing and want to be really good to each other. So um, I don't I don't want me to to result in this feeling that we're all at risk and we're all at danger all the time. Um, I think overall, we really have a beautiful community here that wants to to care about each other and support each other. Um, But yeah, I I do think that sometimes um, where there is inequality um, or where there are very specific gender roles, um, you can see some disproportionate um, abuse and assault rates for sure. Um, And that's not unique to the LDS faith. Um, that, that tends to be true where there are higher degrees of male privilege uh, overall. So uh, someone mentioned earlier that within academia, um, that tends to be a heavily male-dominated field, and it can be especially difficult for women to come forward in that field, too, because they're not represented proportionately. Um, so I don't think that it's any institution or um, you know, specific cultural element that's, that's causing that. I just think um, where we see more gender equity, where we see more equality overall, we tend to see um, a better response to this and better safety um, overall. So, um, and, and I love what people were saying earlier about shifting the culture and helping people feel really safe to come forward. But to me, the cultural shift starts even before that, um, where we're aware of how we're engaging with other people respectfully, um, and we're getting even further upstream um, and, and really trying to make sure that we're creating safe spaces for people to begin with. Um, I think we have to be careful when we're talking about this that we're not putting blame on people for um, keeping things quiet or not responding or not reporting. Um, the, the responsibility resides with the person who has caused the harassment or the abuse, and that's really where we need to focus our efforts on change. We have a caller from, uh, uh, yes, go ahead. I heard someone wanted to oh, respond to you. You know, I appreciate what Jennifer said because I think sometimes it can be easy to say, you know, oh, in Utah we have this problem because there is a predominant religion here, because there is a certain culture here. And we see that at BYU as well. We are owned and operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have a strong religious presence and culture on our campus. But as I've spoken with my colleagues at um, campuses across the country uh, who are religious-based and not religious-based, public and private, we all have the same issues. You know, we're all trying to deal with these same issues and and how to um, resolve them and and work to eradicate them. It's not just specific to BYU and the fact that we're a religious school. So I think it can sometimes be easy to just kind of pass off and say, oh, because of the culture here, we have such a big problem, and and almost kind of, you know, uh, place blame there instead of really taking to heart the fact that these are issues everywhere, especially in the cultures and in situations that Jennifer mentioned, where there's maybe power differentials, strong gender roles, those sorts of things. I just think, you know, putting a lot of that on a culture or religion um, is a way to uh, absolve ourselves of some responsibility, not realizing that these are issues everywhere in every society, in every culture and and situation on every college campus, which is where my primary focus is. And so I think it's really important that we take this step further and go a little bit deeper, as has also been mentioned, in really figuring out where does this issue lie and what can we do about it. 
We have uh, we had a caller from Roosevelt who uh, didn't want to go on the air but uh, uh, passed on his message to my producer. Uh, he said he thinks the Mormon Church, the LDS faith, with their closed-door policies is a huge contributing factor to this in the state. And he adds, if you would like, search the hashtag MormonMeToo and read the responses. That's a caller from Roosevelt. Glad you called. Uh, appreciate that. Um, so I don't know. Does anyone ha- want to? Uh, I think we, you know, we talked about this previously, but to respond specifically to to our caller from Roosevelt. I would just, I mean, again, being from BYU, that yeah. the wheelhouse that I live in is as far as addressing these issues, sometimes from a religious perspective. But I would again just echo my point of, I mean, the the Mormon Church as well. It's not specific to our religion. I mean, we know the Catholic Church has issues with these with these things. Other religions, any group, there's going to be good and bad. Um, and I, I'm grateful, you know, to the strides that are being taken, the, the opening of the door policy, you know, the Church being more transparent about different things and helping people understand. I think there's a long way to go, and I think some of that relates back to the cultural shift that we're talking about, the resistance to even be willing to have these conversations. Um, but I, I do think, do we have our problems in Utah and amongst the Church that is the predominant faith there? Absolutely. Do they have them in any other, you know, organized religion or any other organized group? Absolutely. Um, I think that's something that we need to look at and and figure out, Uh, but I do think that it's not specific to just our church, our campus, our state, our community, our culture. These issues exist everywhere. Um, Is there a framework that's allowing them to continue or policies and processes that are making it more difficult to address maybe and that's what we look at but that's what this momentum can allow us to do is look at these things and create positive changes as a result i want to before we go to break uh, turn to christina jepson uh one portion of our caller from roosevelt uh you know neither agreeing or disagreeing with his uh, central point but he mentioned closed door policies and uh, and you know lead you to transparency and i wonder i want to get us talking about we'll we'll treat this in more depth after the break uh, best practices. I'm guessing transparency would be among those practices. Yeah, so with employers specifically, and this would actually relate to many types of organizations, but you really have to start by sitting down and saying, what is our policy? And crafting a policy about you know, primarily not tolerating sexual um, harassment and discrimination in the workplace or whatever the organization is. And then, like I said, you know, really educating or training the people involved about what your policy is and what you're not going to tolerate. And then creating a structure for reporting. And reporting goes all the way from, like I said, it's it's such a continuum of behavior, all the way, you know, at the bottom to just people maybe misunderstanding and having different sensitivities all the way to, you know, very egregious behavior. But, you know, using your words and bringing those things forward um, and having open doors so people can report those kind of concerns. And then if it's excuse me, warranted, you know, going forward with an investigation and taking action. Okay. Uh, Go ahead. Can I weigh in on that, too, just a little bit? This is Jen from the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. I just want to remind people, too, that if you're not ready to come forward or you're not sure how to start a conversation, you're not sure what your rights are, or you're not sure what your reporting responsibilities are, our hotline is there to help people totally confidentially for free 24-7, we are there around the clock, and we actually have services available in over 100 different languages. So 
um, please reach out to us. If you don't know what to do, you know, these situations can be really complicated. Um, it doesn't have to be traditional domestic violence or abuse to reach out to a professional hotline um, advocate at 1-800-897-LINK. Um, you can find those resources on our website, too. So talking with an advocate that's funded under the Violence Against Women Act has a high degree of confidentiality provision with it. It actually is on par with HIPAA, so it's like talking to your doctor. So, um, so it is important to have open-door policies. It's also important to have confidentiality and a safe space for people to turn, uh, whether or not they're, they're ready to report or willing to report. Uh, sometimes people really can do a lot of healing and a lot of, um, of really important work personally if they have a safe, trained advocate to talk to about this. So the website, udvc.org? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's right. On that point, a lot of larger employers are creating hotlines of their own and anonymous hotlines and those same sort of mechanisms for people to make reports. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. So um, places to go. Um, let me just right now, let's just treat this right now. Um, so uh, Jennifer Oxborough, the, the place to go to Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, udvc.org. And give us the phone number again. Right. So this is just one resource for people. Um, as our other panelists are saying, there are a lot of different resources out there, but one that I really want people across Utah to know about is, uh, is our hotline is 1-800-897-LINK, L-I-N-K. That's 5465. 1-800-897-5465. And you can find information about resources talk to an advocate. There's no dumb question. There's no silly question. Um, we call it the link line because we link people back to other resources across the state. Um, and you can find us at UDVC, Utah Domestic Violence Coalition.org. Uh, Tiffany Turley, any contact points you'd like to give people? Um, our website, we link actually to the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition website as well on okay. our website, title9.byu.edu. So we're also kind of a linking point, helping people know what the resources are. Um, there's so many good companies and organizations doing great things. So title9.byu.edu, there's a community resources page that includes Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. And Krista Jepson, most organizations have a, have a person, right, uh, to, that you can go to. Right. So you should go to your HR department or you should look at the policy at your own company and see who is listed as the people you can go to to make a report. Okay. Uh, when we come back after a break, we'll have about 10 minutes uh, to, to get to uh, sort of the meat of the panel, um, which is what the members of Utah Women's Giving Circle wanted to uh, really treat is uh, moving the conversation forward into a solution, a new, new standard, as, answering the question, now what? We'll get into talking about that. Our panelists uh, with us on the program today, which will be on the panel then, are Christina Jepson from Parsons, Bailey, Latimer, Jennifer Oxborough, Executive Director of Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, and Tiffany Turley, Title IX Coordinator with Brigham Young University. The uh, panel discussion is After Me Too, A New Frontier. It's being presented by the Utah Women's Giving Circle. That is Thursday, May 2nd. Um, member social at 6, and the panel begins at 6.30. That's at Dorsey and Whitney, 111 Main Street in Salt Lake City. More following this. David McMillan is a photographer from Winnipeg who went to the Chernobyl site back when his friends and family begged him not to, back when no one would think of risking that kind of radiation. David will tell you why he's consistently photographed Chernobyl and how it's made him change his life back in Canada. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International.
That's this afternoon at 1 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, we've reached our last segment with uh, a panel. They're going to be uh, presenting a, uh, a presentation, a panel on uh, Thursday, May 2nd, presented by Utah Women's Giving Circle. It's titled After Me Too, A New Frontier. And uh, we have with us Christina Jepson from Parsons Bailey Latimer, Jennifer Oxborough, Executive Director of Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, and Tiffany Turley, uh, Title IX Coordinator with Brigham Young University. And uh, members of the Utah Women's Giving Circle uh, said with this event they wanted to take awareness generated by Me Too and drive the conversation forward into solution and a new standard answering the question, now what? So that's what I'd like to focus of this last uh, oh, seven or eight minutes of the conversation to be. I'd like to uh, start with Tiffany Turley. I know on, on campuses, many campuses have been grappling with this and, and uh, you know trying to find the way forward. I know here at Utah State University, where I'm speaking to you from, we've uh, been, been grappling with this as well, and, and BYU no exception. You're the, the new Title IX uh, officer there. Um, maybe you can talk about on, on campus what, uh, what solutions and, uh, and what you're trying to implement. I think for us uh, at BYU, and as I mentioned previously in the broadcast, you know, the issues that we're seeing are not unique to BYU. As you mentioned, you see them up at uh, in Utah State. We're seeing them at, at every campus. And so one thing that I've appreciated is the chance to coordinate with colleagues at different schools and, and figure out how we all move forward with this and how we take the momentum and, and channel it in positive ways for our students. As administrators, I think it's important that we are being willing to sit down and listen to our students. I feel that Me Too has given students a voice where maybe they didn't have one before, people who have faced these sorts of issues. And so I think as administrators, one thing we need to do is make sure students feel heard and respected and, and listened to. And I think that with um, the, the Me Too movement and, and how it's impacting campuses, you know, we have policies and processes in place, and I'm sure Christina could speak to this more when it comes to policies and processes and violations of the law and things like that. But a lot of times the things that come forward to us are maybe not a policy violation. Maybe it doesn't rise to the level of an unlawful harassment issue. Nonetheless, we have a student or an employee or a faculty member really facing these tough situations. So how can we take even those maybe um, lower scale situations and really start to make a difference and address them before they elevate into bigger issues? And I think on campus, what this is helped us do is really allow all of us, even people like myself who are involved in this work every single day, to self-assess and figure out what am I even doing to either perpetuate this or prevent uh, these things from happening in the future. So at, at 
colleges and on campuses across the country where we know these sorts of things are happening. Students are younger. They're maybe more inexperienced in bringing forward issues. I'm grateful that there's been opportunities for them to be able to have that voice and to put the information out there, and then we can respond in ways that are meaningful, helping them feel heard and valued and like we care and want to make it a better experience for them and providing them with resources to be able to manage and navigate some of these challenges. Uh, we'll just have about uh, five minutes left, so just a couple of minutes here uh, for, for each of the rest of our panelists. But uh, I want to turn to Christina Jepson uh, in the workplace, uh, looking forward, uh, new standards, uh, solutions uh, in the wake of Me Too. Really need to sit down the management team and ask themselves have we addressed this do we have the processes in place have we done the right things and if we haven't you know we're going to start today we're going to you know get the advice we need to you know get policies get training start doing what we need to do um, but beyond that I would say that companies also need to have conversations about you know do we have women in management do we have women um, at the supervisor level? Do we have women, you know, actively involved in our company? Because really, once you start having a quality of men and women in the workplace, these issues can be addressed more directly, I believe, and you can have more of a culture of respect. So I think companies need to ask themselves some really hard questions and, you know, figure out what those answers are for their particular environment. Uh, and Jennifer Oxborough, uh, this this uh, very important question that you'll be treating again on on May second, um, taking awareness generated by me to driving the conversation forward into solution and a new standard. Uh, what what's your answer to that uh, that that question? Now what? You know, I am so thrilled to see so many wonderful organizations coming forward um, and embracing just what my my colleagues are talking about today. Um, so we've, we've done work recently with Rio Tinto. Um, we're about to do some work, some training with uh, LDS Family Services. We've partnered and trained, you know, the Mexican consulate, um, over 60 law enforcement agencies across the, the state um, have partnered with our member programs and have ongoing training plans. Um, they're developing policies. They're really taking this seriously, and they're looking at ways that they can get some technical assistance and make some policies and procedures um, that make sense amid this this movement and this era to prevent um, this sort of harassment from happening in the workplace, make sure everyone feels safe and respected, make sure that people are held accountable uh, when they're not respecting those policies and standards, and, um, and also support people when they're coming forward. And I think just the most important thing that we can do, whether it's at a macro level and we're talking about an organization or at a very micro level with someone that we care about, is to start by believing when someone comes forward and tells you about something, you are in a position of trust. And there are three things that you can say to them. You can say, I am sorry this happened to you. I believe you. And I'm here to support you. What can I do? And you know, we can figure it out together. And so I, I think that's something real that we can all do, no matter what our role or what our leadership, um, you know, example is. We can definitely um, start by believing and, and really try to create a culture of change. And we'll leave it there. Uh, just uh, one more time, give the phone number, would you? Sure. Our number at the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, where you can reach a free confidential victim advocate 24-7, um, is 1-800-897-LINK, L-I-N-K. So that's 1-800-897-5465. 
The uh, panel discussion is being presented by the Utah Women's Giving Circle, and that's on Thursday, May 2nd, begins at 6.30 p.m. That's at Dorsey and Whitney, 111 Main Street in Salt Lake City. Uh, the tickets are free for members of the Giving Circle and students. $10 to the public. You can get uh, ticket information and other information at utahwomensgivingcircle.com slash event slash after dash me too. The panelists are Tiffany Turley, Title IX Coordinator with uh, Brigham Young University. Uh, Tiffany Turley, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Jennifer Oxborough has joined us, Executive Director, Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, panelists. This has been a great discussion. And Christina Jepson with Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And uh, thanks uh, for everyone who for tuning in. Keep this discussion going. You can still comment to us at upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. What you see all across the country is hope work. I have hope because I know this just can't be the best version of the world that we can have. What is the best version of the world we live in? This week, we continue with our three-part series on hope, asking, how do we make it? Because let's be honest, if we don't have hope, there's no future. Join us next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge. That's Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio.